I think we're all set here. You can turn in your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. I'm sorry if the, the voice comes across a little nasally this morning. I'm on the back end of the traditional fall head cold. So we should be just fine this morning. Mark chapter 12. What an excellent intro into our topic this morning. My task is to cover the first and the greatest commandment as given to us by Jesus. He gives us two, and we may have uh, a few things here and there throughout this sermon that comment on the second greatest command, but our primary focus will be on the first. And we're going to find that in Mark chapter 12. We'll start in verse 28, and we'll read through verse 34. And there's a A setting, a scene that is going on here as Jesus engages with one of the members, one of the leaders of the Jewish community of Israel. And uh, that man asks him a question and we have the response from Jesus that we're going to focus on this morning. So let's start reading in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So in this section of Mark, we're in the series, or we're in the middle of a series of questions, some going back and forth between Jesus and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the leaders of Israel that comprised the Sanhedrin wanted to trip Jesus up. They wanted to find a reason to accuse him. He was gaining popularity. And uh, at, at many points, he also called them out for their hypocrisy. And so they hated him. And so they wanted to find a legitimate reason to accuse him and put him to death ultimately. And so if you went back into this chapter, you would see that they came to him with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, this was a seemingly impossible question to answer well. They figured that no matter what answer Jesus gave, that they could accuse him one way or the other. And he answered it perfectly, and they had nothing to accuse him of. The second question came specifically from the Sadducees, these people in the Sanhedrin that did not believe in the resurrection. So they came with their best question about the resurrection, and a seemingly very difficult one. And once again, Jesus solves their theological conundrum quite easily because he understands the Word of God far better than they ever have. And so lastly, we come to this one, and it is a scribe. And he seems to come with a different question, a, a certainly a slightly different intention. He's not coming as antagonistically. He, he still, though, is coming to test Jesus. And he wants to know... Jesus' answer to a commonly debated topic among the leaders, among those that would teach the Old Testament. And the scribe is going to decide whether or not Jesus' answer is an appropriate answer, is a good answer. 
And so you might not understand why he asks this question, but if you understand that the Old Testament law had a lot of commands, uh, 613 separate commandments to be exact, 365 prohibitions, things you ought not to do, and then 248 positive commands, you might start to understand that when the leaders got together, they might debate what is the most important, what are the leading commandments, what are the the heavy commandments, as it were, and then what are some of the lighter commandments? Not, not that we need to or we can dismiss any of them, but if you wanted to, to summarize, if you wanted to give a description of the Old Testament law in a nutshell, you know, what would you say? And so that's where these debates came from, and they were fairly common. And so if there was a teacher who gained some prominence, it would have been fairly common to go to that teacher and ask him, well, how do you summarize the Old Testament. In fact, this was done, um, and we have record of other rabbis giving the answer. Um, there was a rabbi about 20 years before Jesus who said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. In the third century, there was one who summarized it with Proverbs 3, 6. There he said, in all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your paths straight. In the fourth century, another rabbi said, the righteous shall live by faith, is the sum of the Old Testament. So you see they attempted at giving these, these summary answers. And we understand this. If you're, if you're here taking notes this morning, you are certainly not going to write down every single thing that is said. But you will, you will write down the major ideas, right? The, the, the big things that strike you, the things that you want to remember as you leave. And so that's kind of what they were doing as they went through the Old Testament and tried to, to summarize it. So which commandment is the foremost Right? Where do you start? The, the primary commandment in the sense of the, the overarching commandment, right? What, what umbrella does the rest of the Old Testament fit under? Jesus even himself acknowledges that, that this is a, a valid thing to do. Uh, when we read this account in Matthew, you can read this parallel account in Matthew chapter 22. After Jesus gives his answer, he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right, Jesus himself even says these are the ones that overarch, right, that, that give a, a summary, as it were, of everything else that is commanded in the Old Testament. And so we have this scribe's question to Jesus. And we have Jesus' answer. We can read it once again in verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind with all your strength and the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself now we might say that this command these two commands are fairly obvious um, and honestly that would just be because we've heard them so much if you've grown up in the church you've heard these commands frequently you know this answer as you read this story but for his day this was revolutionary. Nobody had ever put together these two commands as the sum total of the Old Testament law and the prophets. We only think it's obvious because we know Jesus' answer. But what Jesus does here is he takes Deuteronomy 6, if you're looking for the Old Testament references, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and that's where we get the first part where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. We'll go into why Jesus' answer in Mark is slightly different, but it's very, very close to what is said in Deuteronomy 6. 
the second portion he gets from the second half of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So let's dive into this from the start. First, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And this is a very important thing to remember as we come to the word of God. We are to hear. We are to listen to the word of God. We are to learn from it. Truth is not found in you. It is not found in some group of people in the world. Truth is found in God. And when God speaks, we ought to listen. And when his word is given to us, we ought to heed it, learn from it, and grow and change because of it. If you disagree with the word of God, your opinion needs to change. Your thoughts need to change, right? God does not conform himself to us, but we ought to conform our th- ourselves, our thoughts, our opinions to him. And so we need to hear. The second part of the beginning of this is that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Again, the starting point, right? We are to listen and then Jesus gives us the starting point. It is the Lord, our God. He is the foundation. He is the, the, the source the truest guide. Everything starts here. If you start anywhere else, you, you, it leads to confusion. You won't understand why this world is the way it is. You won't understand how you ought to live. If you start with the Lord, everything else makes sense. This is huge in the culture in which we live. This idea that there is no truth that permeates our culture. Or, or the thing you might often hear People say that I worship God in my own way. It sounds very much like the theme of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? Every person in hell worshipped their own way. It may have not been the God of the Bible, but they worshipped something in their own way. Every person that is in heaven, every person that will be in heaven, worships God in the way that God calls them to. They worship in God's way. So we must start with the Lord. Otherwise, nothing else works. Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else is right. Secondly, the Lord is one. There are not many gods. There's not a group of gods that deliberate and vote. There's no competition in the race for God. The God of the Bible is it. He is the God of the universe. And every single person that has ever existed, he is the only one, right? He is the creator, the sustainer of this life that you live right now. The author of life, the one who gives the law, the one who judges, the one who saves. There is only one God. In Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. There's no other God that exists. Demons are not gods. Nature is not God. You will never become God. There's been hundreds, I'm sure. I haven't counted, but there's, I'm sure there's been hundreds of man-made religions throughout history. And not a single one of them has ever produced a real God 
And none of them ever will. And even if they did, that God would not be worthy of our worship. But I, I, ought, I ought to never worship something that I create. Let's turn over for a moment to Isaiah chapter 44. There's some great parallels that are drawn in the Old Testament between the real God and then the gods that people make. Isaiah chapter 44. And I know these were more obvious gods in the Old Testament. People actually carved wood or stone and made an idol and then they fell down and worshipped it. It seemed, it might seem more ridiculous to us, but there's really no difference. We, we, we just make our idols look better today, you know, or we, we don't make them as obvious when we worship things like, like fame or, or, or perhaps comfort, right? Or, or maybe money or the approval of people. Those are still idols, we just don't have them in the corner of our house with a shrine of candles in front of them. They're often idols that, that reside in our hearts, and they might be a little harder to see, but they haven't changed. And this is how ridiculous idols are. Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 14. We're in the middle of a, of a description here, but I wanted to keep this section a little shorter as we read it. It's talking about a, a person who is making an idol, and it says in verse 14, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Go down to verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? It's the, it's the obvious, incredible stupidity of falling down before this, this block of wood when you realize half of it was good enough for me to cook over but the other half is so good that I will worship it. And this is what an idol is. Turn back a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 40. Because there the author describes God. And we see how clearly it compares to an idol, any idol that we may fashion. Let's start in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, speaking of God, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root, in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing." 
Back to Mark chapter 12. There is one God. And He is nothing that we can create. He is nothing that has ever been created. But He is the one who is over and above and supersedes everything on this earth. So only when we start here can we come to the commandment to love this God and understand why we ought to love Him and then also learn how we ought to love Him. When we understand who God is, we see that He alone is worthy of love, worship, affection, and devotion. Right? An idol will never be worthy of these things. Only God is worthy of these things. And so we must start with the one true God. But how do I love Him? Again, only when we start with God can we answer this question. Have you ever wondered if your idea of love is correct? I've never actually thought about it that much. Is my idea of love correct? And We probably don't think about this too much because in most instances, it's not that hard to understand. Should I provide food for my children or let them starve? What is more loving? The answer is obvious, right? If I'm at work, should I kindly remind a coworker that has forgotten something of what they've forgotten, or should I scream, at, scream in their face until they run away crying in absolute shame? Well, what is more loving? The answer is obvious. Right? Do I send my wife an anniversary text with a two exclamation points, right? or, or do I take her out to a nice dinner right? and spend the evening enjoying her company? Which one is more loving? We did dinner, just so everybody knows, okay? We did dinner. Um, but, but sometimes it's harder. When someone harms you, or when someone close to you is hurt, is love towards the person that hurt them an appropriate response? Think of our society today. You know, when somebody comes to you and says, I, I know I, I came out as a boy, but I'm a girl. What is the loving response? Do you affirm them in love, or do you say that they're wrong in love? If your answer comes from the world, you will, you will probably come to the, the phrase that we see so often today, love is love. Now, it's circular reasoning, so we don't really learn much from that. But everyone has their limits to the idea that love is love. But I understand what people are saying when they say love is love. They're, they're basically saying that if somebody says they love something else, that we should accept it because it's, it's love and that it must be okay. But everyone has their limits. Right? We can give a simple test to this, you can just ask the person, okay, then let's discuss um, a 50-year-old man and a 12-year-old child. Right? And most people today will say, oh, that is wrong. That is not love. That is not appropriate for whatever reason. But the phrase love is love allows you to go to that place. There is nothing in the idea that love is love that stops you from saying that relationship is okay. And so the question is not, what does the world say? 
because the world will confuse us and lead us down many paths that are wrong. The question is, what does God say? What is love based on who God is? And again, we have to start with God because a lot of these questions will get you all twisted up and confused. But if you start with the Lord, you can answer all these questions. And if you don't like the answer, God is still God. right? And when we come to the Bible, we conform our thoughts and our understanding to God. We don't accuse God of being wrong for He is the one who is holy and perfect and just and righteous. Right? And all of His ways are good. He is kind in everything He does. I want to learn love from that God. Right? I don't want to learn love from this world. Love, like everything else, is from God. Because as the Bible says, God is love. He defines love. And so then we can learn what it is to love. And then we can come to this command and say, okay, how do I love this God? So we've started in the right place. And let's learn from God what love is. God is a triune God. Our girls have been doing catechism questions at night, so if I asked them, if they were paying attention, Renee and Caitlin, if they were paying attention right now, and I asked them how many persons are there in the Godhead, they should be able to say there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. And so we learn from God right off the bat that he is a relational God because of who he is. He is one God in three persons. And we understand that is hard to understand, but that is how God is revealed to us in Scripture. And that means that he is a relational God. Right? There is love in the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and it is a perfect love. Right? And so we can learn love from God as we see him display love um, in himself, and then outward to his creation. We learn from the scriptures a few things about the love of God. First, in Deuteronomy 7, it is a love of the will. In Deuteronomy 7, God says to Israel, I loved you because I loved you. And he's explaining to them in that moment that they weren't worthy of his love. They weren't the greatest nation. They weren't really, really courageous or righteous or moral But God set his love upon them because he desired to set his love upon them. And he is a God who loves. And that is why he loved them. And so it is a a love of the will that we see from God. But it is not a, a dispassionate love of the will. We go to Hosea chapter 11 verse 8. God says this to Israel. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And, and he says this in the midst of Israel's rebellion. When he's he's talking to them about their sin and their wandering. He says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It is an affectionate love of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? It is a love that acts. Right? It is not a love that stays silent or sits on the sideline, but it is a love that acts. And then one of the, the greatest verses in the Bible about the love of God, describing the greatest display of love, is in Romans 
There's a similar verse in 1 John 4.10 if you wanted to look there as well. But in Romans 5.8 it says, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? It is a sacrificial love. He doesn't just give out of His abundance something that is easy. You know, It's not a, a billionaire giving me $20, but it is God giving the best right, for sinners and so if we, we try to put all of these together, I think we can define love like this. A willful devotion to and affection for another that is self-sacrificing for their benefit. A willing devotion to and affection for another that is self-sacrificing for their benefit. Again, we have to understand what it, what it is to benefit somebody, to do good to them. And again, that comes from an understanding of who God is and what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. And then I also want to acknowledge that when we, when we talk about our love to God, right, there's some nuance to this definition. I, I will never do something for God that, that helps Him in the sense that He needs something from me. And so I, I would nuance this definition as we think about our love to God in this way. I would say that we love for God from us is a willful devotion to an affection for God that expresses itself in self-denying obedience and authentic worship to His glory. Right? Being devoted to God, being affectionate towards God. In doing that where we obey Him, denying ourselves to obey Him, and we worship Him, all to His glory. So let's come to, again, our passage. And you shall love the Lord your God. You shall be devoted to Him. You shall have an affection for the Lord your God. You shall worship Him. You shall obey Him. Right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So all of these things, and then Jesus continues and he adds on with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The quotation from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament verse that Jesus pulls to give this answer, does not include mind. But Jesus adds it here in Mark because the audience is different. In, in the Old Testament Israel times, the heart and the mind were essentially the same thing for them. Right? They did not understand this head-heart distinction, right? where you would feel with one of them but think with the other. It was really all together. So when they said heart, they, they understood that it was your, your feeling, your thinking components. But Jesus adds it here because this, this is a, a primarily Greek audience that Mark is writing to. So as Mark records what Jesus says, he adds it to give some clarity so that the audience understands. And it's helpful for us because we have that distinction these days too, right? We, we often say, you know, that I'm thinking up here, but I'm feeling down here. But Jesus intends to include all of that. So as we think and feel and make decisions and make plans, right, our emotions, our mind, our will, all of that is to be done in love towards God. Right, so every, every thought should be devoted to God. Every emotion guided by affection for God. Every plan in obedience to God. 
into his revealed will. Every decision should have the end goal of worshiping God. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind. When we think about soul, to love God with all of your soul, this really gets down to the the fundamental, deepest parts of us, right? The very essence of who we are. The, the essential stuff of life, as it were. In the deepest recesses of your soul, what do you love? Right? Those, those, those deep places that nobody sees, that only you know about. What do you love in that depth? The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To the deepest parts of him, he loved God. And Jesus also adds, with all of your strength. And he's not talking here about physical strength. In fact, this word is, is more easily understood as describing or, or being applied to the first two parts of this command. As an adverb, modifying to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. It means to do so exceedingly, right? To the utmost strength. And so we could almost rephrase what Jesus says here by saying that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and that to the fullest extent. As far as you can go to the end of yourself, in all of your ability, you love God. And so we have covered the entirety of a person from head to toe to the deepest depths within us. And does God deserve any less? Would it make sense to say that you can love God 80% of the way? With 50% of who you are? With 50% of your decisions? Even if we said 99%. It would mean that God is not worthy of all of you. But knowing who he is, right? We started with God, knowing who he is, the only appropriate, reasonable response is that he is to be loved with everything in us, to the utmost, with all of our strength, all of our energy, all of our time, devotion, our thoughts, our passions, everything. This is the call. This is the command. This is the most important. And then Jesus follows it up with the, with the command for relationship from person to person. And we won't cover that today, but we have plenty here to think about. Because the obvious question then is, as we learn what it means to love God, how are you doing? Are you doing well at this? And if you're a thinking person, you start to feel that, that, that conviction. Because I know none of us are even close to doing what Jesus commands here. Because I know myself, because I know the sin nature, right? I know that what he is requiring to the depths of my being, I cannot fulfill. And we'll come to that again, but let's look briefly at how the scribe responds because it's also very interesting. Just to once again emphasize how glorious our Lord is. The scribe hears this answer and he says to Jesus, you're right, teacher. For you have truly said that he is one. And the scribe goes through and basically 
rephrases and, and repeats what Jesus said and affirms it. And here the scribe is in his role as somebody who was an expert in the Old Testament. Right? He is giving his authoritative response and evaluation of Jesus' answer. As somebody who would have been respected and looked up to in that culture, especially when it came to matters of the law and the Old Testament. And so he is showing his authority. And I love verse, 30, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. You see, the scribe shows or attempts to show Jesus that he is approving as an expert of his answer. And Jesus instead shows his authority on the kingdom of God and who is close and who is going to be accepted by God. This is a whole different level. The scribe has some authority. It is true. And Jesus comes and says, you are not far from eternity with God and shows his authority as the son of God to not only say that you had a good answer on the law, but rather to say, this is where you are in relation to the God who made you and into all in relationship to all of eternity. Right? Jesus, Jesus' authority is far greater. And it's a beautiful thing to see him show that to the scribe. But as we finish out, let's come back to our question. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and that to the fullest extent possible? And your answer is no. Your answer is no. And if your answer is yes, then you do not understand yourself nor the requirements of God, nor what it means to love God. But hopefully this sermon is is helpful. Your answer must be no. Every thought devoted to God, every emotion guided by an affection for God, every plan in obedience to God, every decision with an end goal of worshiping God, and all of this to the deepest recesses of your soul, right? no, no mixed motivations, no, no frustration, no complaints at the difficulty, and doing this with all of your strength and energy every moment of every day. I don't know myself well enough to understand the depths of myself to even ascertain whether or not I'm close to doing this. Right? Where there's so many things about ourselves. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that you learn more about yourself as you live the Christian life. And you realize years or, or months or decades into being a Christian that the things you used to do that were sinful, you're just realizing it now. You didn't even see it back then. And, and, and praise God, He doesn't show us our sinfulness all at once. But we don't even know ourselves well enough to obey this in the way we ought to. And not even to mention the moments we know something is wrong and we just do it anyway because we want to. Those happen frequently enough. This is why God calls our righteousness filthy rags. His standard is perfection. This is why it is impossible to obey the law of God. This is why you will never stand before God and say, I did pretty well. But do not take this as an invitation to try harder. First of all, you've already failed. 
Right? That there's no murderer that's going to do enough good to work off the penalty for his murder. Right? Your sin cannot be worked off by your good deeds. But again, this is not an invitation to try harder. It is a glorious invitation to realize your hopelessness because only then is there hope when you come before the God who is loving and forgiving and you say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. As Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And this is the glory of the gospel. Right? Jesus at every moment of every day, think about that, loved God to the utmost in absolute perfection. And then in the greatest act of love in all of history, he went to the cross, giving of himself, giving his life. And God placed upon him the sins of his people. And Jesus paid for their sins in full. So that everyone who comes to Jesus, believing and trusting, asking for mercy and grace, is forgiven and washed completely clean. And then in a glorious exchange, given His righteousness. Right, So that this requirement is met in us because we have received the righteousness of Jesus. That perfection of life that He lived is given to us, credited to our account. Not because of anything we have done, but because He is a loving God, so that we can stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Perfect. And that is the gospel. And if you are hopeless here as a sinner before God, believe the gospel, for that is your only hope. And then as believers, once we have believed the gospel and God places his spirit within us and sanctification begins, right? we can again continue to ask this question of ourselves. Do I love God with all my heart and soul and that to the fullest extent? And our answer will be no, but as, as we progress in sanctification, as God works in us, the answer should be more than I used to yesterday and by the grace of God tomorrow, more than today. And that is our goal. And so we, we want to come to this question and ask it and think about it. And so what would it look like for us to live more faithfully in this way? We don't come to this and come away depressed, knowing that we have failed. No, we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that we are right before God, and then striving in joy because we love Him. And we want to be more like Christ and do things that are pleasing to God. So, so maybe it's being more fully engaged in worship each Sunday as we come and praise the Lord together. Maybe it's just working more steadily to think greater thoughts about God, right? Reading books that help you think better thoughts about God. Reminding yourself that every decision I make, whether it be with the things I'm buying or, or the friendships I have or the time that I'm spending, right, the glory of God ought to be in my mind as I make those decisions. It's going to be different for each of us. Maybe it's, it's spending more time thinking about heaven, Spending more time with God's people. Or maybe spending more intentional time with some people in your life that are not saved that you can share the gospel with and love them as Christ has loved us. It will certainly involve increasingly hating the sin that is in you and that is in this world. It will 
You will increase in the things that Pastor Gary read in 1 Corinthians 13. As Paul there beautifully defines love practically worked out. As you think about this, another way that might be helpful to evaluate yourself is, do others know that you love God? I'm not asking if you've shared the gospel recently with somebody, though you should if you have the opportunity. But when you do have the opportunity to talk about the Lord with somebody, are they surprised? Are they surprised to hear you say, I love God and I go to church and I worship God with other believers? Or or does it make sense to them? Do they realize that as you say that, that they've watched you and they've noticed that, yes, there, there is something about your life that makes them see you do love God. You don't fit in this world. Everyone, if they know you, knows that you do love something. We've mentioned from this pulpit that I barbecue meats on the side. And if you talk to me a little bit, it'll probably come up. But the fact that I love the Lord, it most certainly must come up. That must be more important than anything else. And as you evaluate, think about in what ways do you do this? In what ways do you love the Lord? Be encouraged by God's work in your life. The goal is perfection. You will not get there. That's okay because perfection is obtained in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we we don't work and strive and take encouragement from God's work in us. So, So take these thoughts and this passage and this command and evaluate your life and strive to be like Christ. Strive towards holiness and to love God more fully. But rest in the work that He is, has done. Right? There's a beautiful balance in the Christian life. We are striving for holiness and resting in the holiness given to us by Christ. And we want to do both. Right? We strive in joy right? and we rest in peace in what He has accomplished. And along with loving your neighbor, which we weren't able to cover this morning, but these two commands sum up the Christian life. This is what we are called to. This is what we ought to be thinking about and doing every day. And by the grace of God in Christ, right, we have been clothed in his righteousness as believers, and we can rejoice that the work has been done for us as we strive to follow him more and more. So as we close in prayer, let's... Continue to think about this command um, and think about our great Savior who has done it all for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is good to be here. It is good to study your word. It is so good to be impacted and convicted by your word. For Father, we know how far short we fall. And it is a good thing to see that because that drives us to our knees asking for your help. It draws us to you in worship because... We need your saving grace. And that is good, Father, to come to you needy because you are the good, loving God who picks up the sinner. You redeem and you forgive and you help. For you are a God who truly loves. And Father, I pray that you would just draw us to you this morning. Teach us from your word. I pray that every believer in here would be impacted by your word, would be challenged to love you more. Father, may I be challenged to think about these things more and to love you with my heart and my mind and my soul 
and that to the fullest extent. And we pray, Father, that others might see that in us, that we might have opportunities to share your love with others. And Father, for any here who are not saved, may they realize that they are hopeless and helpless before you. But may they also understand that you are a God who loves to save and help sinners. May they come to you asking for mercy and grace, for you are the God who willingly and freely gives mercy and grace to everyone who comes to you. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.